This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway, publisher of the ESV Teen Study Bible. Our current culture possesses an endless number of distractions and temptations, which is why having faithful and accessible biblical resources for teens is more important than ever. The ESV Teen Study Bible, edited by Pastor John Nielsen, provides numerous study and resource materials, including 12,000 study notes, more than 350 devotions, and 200 applicational and doctrinal sidebars to help define key doctrines. These features and more will facilitate deep engagement with the scriptures, impacting the minds, hearts, and lives of teen followers of Christ. Pick up a copy of the ESV Teen Study Bible wherever books are sold, or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off. This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is brought to you by TGC's 2020 Women's Conference, June 11 to 13 in Indianapolis. Looking for a Christmas present for a woman in your life? Send her to TGCW20. Register before December 30th to get a discounted rate. More information at tgc.org slash 2020. This is the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. This episode originally ran in 2017. In order to survive and even thrive in our information age, Andy Crouch believes the church must become more like a family, and the family must become more like a church. His new book, The TechWise Family, Everyday Steps for Putting Technology in Its Proper Place, explains how wise, discerning handling of new media technology will cultivate wisdom and courage. The home, he says, must limit technology in order to delight in God, neighbor, family, and nature. The church, he says, will not enjoy authentic community unless it disciples Christians in countercultural living when it comes to our TVs, video games, and smartphones. Crouch joins me on the Gospel Coalition podcast to discuss his new book, published by Baker, with new insights and research from Barna. For more than 10 years, Crouch was an editor and producer at Christianity Today, where I got to know him. He served as executive editor from 2012 to 2016. He joined the John Templeton Foundation this year as senior strategist for communication. He is the author of several books, including Strong and Weak, Embracing a Life of Love, Risk, and True Flourishing, which won TGC's 2016 Book Award in the category of Faith and Work. I look forward to talking with him today about parental peer pressure, family singing, Amish living, Twitter shaming, and more. Thank you for joining me, Andy. Oh, such a pleasure, Colin. Thank you. Uh, Right off the bat in your book, the forward from your daughter, Amy, really stood out to me. It's quite an endorsement. A lot of people, I think, imagine restrictions on technology leading to a colorless life, but you're calling for a better life. What makes your Uh, approach better than the way most Americans handle technology today? 
<laughs> well, I think the problem is most of us, uh, you might say, accept the default settings of technology. <laughs> that is, we just take uh, our devices kind of with all the promises they make and all the ways they offer to help us out and just assume that that will basically be, basically be good for us. And and I don't think that's right. I think these devices are very good insofar as they're part of culture. They're part of human beings cultivating the world. And God said all of that was, at least in its original kind of former intent, very good. But I think we're letting these devices um, take over without really reflecting on how we're using them and without really asking or answering the question, are they actually helping us be the kind of people we're meant to be? So that is what the book is about. And and it is kind of beautiful that my daughter was willing to take a risk for her as a you know 16-year-old, um, uh, write this forward uh, about this the the parenting choices and intentionality that she and her brother have been subjected to, which have been pretty different from the choices our neighbors were making or even our neighbors in church were making, honestly. Yeah, was there any point where <laughs> Sheer, your son, really just was like, Mom and Dad, this is just too much? I mean, was there a moment where they really pushed <laughs> back? I guess as a parent, that's kind of what I'm imagining. Like, uh, I'm playing the long game here. There's probably going to be a time when you hate me. But you know what? <laughs> Eventually, you'll thank me. <laughs> yeah, you know, on technology, I mean, I should say we are we are, we're the furthest thing from an Amish home. I mean, we have had lots of technology around. I mean, I think I was the first person I knew to own a Wi-Fi router. I was so proud of that thing. It cost like $300 or some horrible amount 20 years ago. Um, so it's not like my kids have grown up with, um, with, you know, with no technology or, or some kind of absolutist, or we hope at least not legalistic kind of restrictions on it. At the same time, we were really intentional, but I don't, you know, I think our kids, um, the only thing I remember them, I, I remember my son struggling with how to explain to his friends that, that he didn't have video games when he was eight or nine. That was hard for him, but I don't think he thought we should have them. He just, he just struggled to help his eight-year-old friends know what to do when they came over. So at least for us, partly because we got started on this so early and were intentional all the way along, and because we didn't just take things away, but we had lots of things in place of technology, right? So if you just try to remove stuff, that's that's difficult. But if you add all these wonderful things you can do as a family, play games and cook and go for walks and go hiking and go for bike rides, um, the, the kids don't necessarily miss it very much. Yeah, that, make, that makes sense. Well, you say that by giving screens to kids to occupy their time, we actually make their boredom and discipline problems worse. <laughs> Another thing that I think would probably be counterintuitive to a lot of people here. Explain why you say that. Uh, well, I think it's true. I mean, I don't know if I can prove it, but you know, one of the ways we often turn to devices or reasons we often turn to devices is when the kids are bored or squirming around or in a place where they need to be quiet. And in any given moment, the fastest way to get a child to quiet down and not cause any trouble is to hand them a glowing rectangle, right? Um, the only problem is that what you're doing basically there, first of all, you're not, you're not so much solving the kid's problem as the parent's problem. It's amazing how often we give children technology not actually to solve a problem they have, but to solve a problem we have. Um, and you're only solving it for that moment because you're doing nothing to help your child and you really learn how do we handle this boring situation or this 
this empty space or this confined space, like sitting in a car seat in a car on the way to the grocery store, on the way to see grandma or whatever. Um, and if we always handle it by introducing a technological device, we actually never develop the sort of wisdom and character in both parents and children. And really I'd say creativity to not be able to be bored. So the next time you're going to feel even more bored and need the device even more. And it's a vicious cycle as opposed to the virtuous cycle of, okay, I understand you're a little bored right now. Let's think about what you could do. And now that will become part of your strategy next time when you're starting to feel this boredom, you'll have something to do. And that's a virtuous cycle that actually leads to more and more creativity, more and more real engagement with the world and with one another. Uh, it's more, but at any given moment, it's more work, which is why we turn to all these devices because they tell us you don't have to do the work. And I don't know how to tell you it's not a good idea today riding to the grocery store, but wouldn't it be awesome if like the next five years of grocery store trips were full of conversation and full of singing and full of spotting things outside and making up stories about them and all the creativity that can happen in even the most ostensibly boring environments. That's what we're missing out on. So I might, I would not hand my son a glowing rectangle, but I might hand him a paperback. Is there a fundamental huh. difference between those technologies or do they or do they both have an equal effect in terms of just trying to get rid of boredom? Well, it's a, such a good question. And I actually I think they're a bit of they're in a way on a continuum like, um, you know, here we're meant as human beings for full on embodied three dimensional three dimensional engagement with each other and the world around us. I think that's our primary mode of operation. That's how we're created to be. We're meant to move through all three planes of action, you know, not uh, that is move in all three dimensions. Uh, kids are really good at this. They can somersault, they can jump up and down, they can sashay side to side, like they're so physical, right? Um, and, uh, and we're meant to be doing all this in constant relationship with each other. And I think it's true that a book you know, uh, sort of corrals you uh, into an imaginative world where you'll be very still in order to engage in this act of imagination. And I actually think, you know, my mom had, when I was a kid, I didn't have a lot of screens around because those didn't exist when I was growing up in the same way. But sometimes I would get too caught up in a book and my mom would have to say, go outside and play, you know, so even the book can do that. But uh, the book does involve your body in a way that the screen doesn't. And we know this because we can actually study people's memory and retention and attention with screens as opposed to books and, um, and with glowing light as opposed to reflected light. And it turns out that there's some kind of learning that happens with a book and an engagement of the imagination, I think for two things, two reasons. One is you're actually in a minor way, but a real way, you're using your body to engage with it more than you do a screen. Because a screen these days, like a tablet, you pretty much just touch it with one finger or maybe two. Whereas the book has weight, it has depth, it has it. the pages... Um, present themselves to you as physical things as well as visual things. And your brain seems to interact with those differently. At least there's a lot of evidence that this is the case. And of course, the other thing is a book does not fill in all the details for you. And so a book invites a kind of creative participation that often our glowing rectangles don't. Now you could read a book on your iPad and I suppose that's better than watching a really immersive movie for, for developing the imagination and the creativity. So they are on a spectrum, but I think there's a lot of reasons to give your kid a book rather than the tablet. 
And as kids get older, it turns out, this is one of the crazy things, they actually prefer books to, uh, to screens for reading. And in fact, it's only older people, especially people like north of 50 who start to need to adjust uh, type size and so forth, who really prefer the screens. The younger you are in America, the more likely you are to prefer reading a physical book rather mm -hmm. than a screen. It's a, it's a really odd inversion of what we usually think where the young people want the technology. In this case, in the case of electronic reading, actually it's the older folks who appreciate it, but actually children really love reading books. Hmm. No, that's definitely counterintuitive. And like I you know, there's so much of that kind of counterintuitive wisdom in your book. We're, we're talking about the TechWise family, everyday steps for putting technology in its proper place. Um, by the time my son hits um, his teenage years, I shudder to think about what in the world is going to be going on then. But that's where you live now. It'll that's be what implants. Yeah, I mean, it's oh, goodness. I don't even want to get into any of that. We got enough to deal with today. Um but here's the question that seems to me to be among the most pressing. Your book does not dwell primarily on sex-related things. Um, that, yeah. that was a really interesting thing. That's what a lot of parents are thinking about. And yep. certainly yep. we know that it's a major factor. I think you cite the statistic of like 30% of all web traffic or something like that is yes. related to, to pornography. Porn. Um, right. Absolutely amazing and horrifying. But to me, that there's a this is this is the bigger issue and i've been talking with youth pastors about this why do so many christian parents christian parents continue to give their children smartphones with apps such as snapchat when they know their kids and their peers are viewing sexually explicit images including ones of their own classmates and friends yeah uh, yeah 62% of teenagers have received a nude image on their phone uh, and 40% the, when you ask them, I mean, I don't know what the, I, yeah. it might, the number might be higher, but when you ask if, if they've had this experience, 62% say they have, and 40% say they have created an image like that. So, um, this is, uh, <laughs> I, mm, the thing is, Colin, I don't know. I, the, the problem is there's nothing you can, there's no single thing you can take away to prevent this. And that's why I don't make this the focus of the book, because I actually think we need a different frame around the picture um, to actually help our kids make better choices. Because if you take away Snapchat, they'll use another app. I mean, kids are really, really inventive. <laughs> Teenagers. That's not new. That's not new. That, that is so not new, right? <laughs> and and uh, in some ways... Um, I think of this as the air pollution, the moral air pollution of our time. It's like living in a city like Beijing that is just so polluted. The reality is uh, you are going to breathe some of this in and your kids are too. But that doesn't mean you don't filter the air in your house. and doesn't mean you don't wear a mask when you go outside. And so there's ways to, to cut down on the just the volume of, of um, pollution coming into our, all of our lives. Um, but the more important thing is to give kids a much more comprehensive uh, kind of set of uh, kind of guidance, let me say, rather than trying to filter it out, which you're never going to be able to do. Um, I think the more important thing, and I have a friend who does this in a really serious way with his four boys between the ages of 12 and 19. He's, uh, he says to them, while you're in my house and I'm your dad, while you're my boys, and uh, once you become men, you'll now be responsible for this. But while you're my boys, I'm your dad. And it's my job to know more about your life than anyone else in your life. And among that, among 
things. That means I can pick up your phone anytime and see anything on it. And he will. He'll just pick it up, go to any app he wants, look at the last few text messages, say, hey, what, what's this conversation about? What, what do you think of this? Um, and that is, I think, almost essential uh, for parenting. If your kids are going to have these uh, all-access devices, even with filters, that give it by all-access, I just mean connection to other kids. I mean, that, right. that isn't going right. to get filtered by any filter invented by human beings so far. Yeah. Well, and, and even then, of course, there are ways that, you know, some things disappear, some things can be deleted. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know there are ways and programs and things like that that can trace different things like that. But I mean, I appreciate your overall perspective there. I, I think at one point you said in the book something to the effect of at least they will know that they've transgressed some kind of moral and religious uh, boundary. Exactly. Something like that. You know, that's kind of the best we can do is make clear that this is a really big deal and that this is a really important part of who we are as humans and as Christians and as a family. And just basically say, at least they'll know. They won't stumble into that as if they've never been prepared for it yes. before. But I think one of the things that you talk about regularly and might be the biggest factor here in all this different stuff, but. How are we supposed to deal with peer pressure from other parents, <laughs> not the other kids, <laughs> this is a from the other picture. parents oh, who are weird. less restrictive about their technology, especially when those parents are in our own churches? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> it's so hard. I mean, I, there is no easy answer to this. I think... Um, <sighs> I don't know that I say a lot about this in the book, do I, Colin? Because I I think we have to have really clear standards for our family. And our kids need to know what they are. And they need to sort of instinctively know um, when they go over to someone else's house, like when there's a boundary cross that they know exists in our family that apparently doesn't in this other family. They need to at least know it's different in our family and my my parents think it's better and here's why they think it's better. How you handle the relationship with any given other adult. And this is a, it's a huge problem because even if we are as careful as we can about how we sort of guard and guide our kids with the, whatever devices they have access to, whenever they have access to it, other parents do not do this is the reality, at least not right now. Um, it takes a lot of diplomacy. I think it takes knowing when to be really firm and knowing when to be a little flexible. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think we have to be, maybe here's the deeper thing. We have to be prepared to be weird, honestly, and, uh, and different. I think every kid should hear from their parents from day one. Our family is different over and over. So when they hit adolescence when being different is hard that's just so ingrained like yeah it is hard but our family is different and and in in loving ways and in ways that aren't aren't legalistic or judgmental um we have to try to hold to some boundaries and and explain to other parents why we have those boundaries why we're not sending a daughter to her sleepover with a cell phone because she doesn't actually need to call home and if she needs to call home she can borrow the parents anyone else's yeah, yeah. um it's just going to take, it takes honestly a level of courage. And, and that's why, you know, you said in the intro, I think, 
church needs to become more like family uh, and that we need to be more deeply involved in each other's lives to help each other with this stuff. And family has to become more like church in the sense that we have to become more honest that we are about forming disciples who are different from our neighbors. And, and to some extent, even from our neighbors who may be part of our churches but aren't thinking this through. And that's hard for kids to hear, and it's hard for parents to enforce. And we've tried to do it as gently as we could at different moments, but sometimes you have to just be really unusual and stick out. And I just think 10 years from now, everybody involved will be grateful that you were different. The kids will be, you will be, and so forth. And maybe even some other parents. And maybe some other parents. I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah, we're, we're we're still early in on this stuff. I mean, I, oh, yeah. I feel like we are we are on a certain end of this spectrum where we're st- we still have a lot of people who did not grow up in formative years with a lot of these technologies, and so they don't really they're not involved with them necessarily. They don't really understand them, and I think that includes still some parents. Oh yeah, a lot of parents, and and a lot of them they just think of it in terms of it helps them solve problems. My daughter yeah. can call. If she is feeling bad at the sleepover, you know, she'll be able to reach me. And, you know, there's these very simple kind of convenience explanations for why we give these kids these devices that then open them up to all kinds of other things. And it's not even just the bad content. It's the distraction from real life. It's the inability to form relationship and conversation. And you're right. I th- I really think I'm I'm actually very hopeful about all this because I I think uh, we are going to realize to some extent at least a large part of our society is going to realize this is not working. <laughs> and rather than being intoxicated with or infatuated with these devices, which is kind of the early adopter kind of response, the people who watched the 2007 Steve Jobs iPhone right. you know, keynote address. There's going to be my kids, my son, who got off Facebook at the end of senior year of high school because he's like, Dad, this is ridiculous. Like, it is not helping anyone be friends with anyone. And, you know, so he and his friends have made totally different choices. And that's quite normal among college students now to be much more intentional than even ten year, five years ago or 10 years ago. Yeah, a common thread of, of your book and what we're talking about now is that a lot of these things that we say are for our kids are actually for us. As parents. And so really, I think that's appropriate. This is not a scolding book at all in any way. But the people who need this message are the parents. Oh, it's um, us. It's so not yeah, about the kids. Yeah. They just do what they see us doing mostly. And and they want help with these things. And they know when they get kind of over addicted to them. The problem is they see their parents binging on Netflix or not able to stop answering emails. I mean, w- when you ask teenagers, um, what's, what would you like to change in your relationship with your parents? The single most common answer from teenagers is I wish my parents weren't on their phones and would just talk to me. That's what the kids want. Right. So it's so, and it's so about me. I mean, I, I've struggled with all this stuff, which is why I tried to make this not a judgmental book at all. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, we'll, we'll get to more of my problems as we continue with this <laughs> interview. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get, we'll switch into the counseling session here in a few minutes, but, um, you're not, Andy, you're not calling us to be Amish, but you say that we need to become more Amish than we might expect <laughs> as certainly consistent here with what we're talking about here is pretty radical, but Here's a sentence that really motivated me to follow through on your advice. You write, if you don't have people in your life who know you and love you in that radical way, it is very, very unlikely you will develop either wisdom or courage. It made me wonder, Andy, do you think digital technology is the or at least a reason, many re- or major reason why many Christians today don't enjoy 
that kind of radical community with one another, especially that kind of radical community that they say that they want out of churches from each other. Oh, it's got to be part of it. And, and I think it's because it actually provides a more effective simulation of real life and real friendship and real engagement and real communication and lots of other things than we had before. Um, uh, and so you're able, you know, I think in a way we're more bored than we've ever been, but we're more easily able to pretend we're not bored. And I think it's the same thing with deep relationships We're we're more lonely and disconnected than we've ever been. But there are these these glowing rectangles that will give us a kind of simulation of of, of a kind of connection. And um, and it gives you it's like, um, you know, I don't know, French fries or cotton candy or, or something, you know, that's not really very nutritious, but you eat enough or potato chips. Right. You eat them and you kind of feel full and you aren't necessarily hungry for something more meaty or substantive. Uh, but you're actually going to feel even hungrier later and and less well. And. And I do think that's happening at a relational level um, with with all these devices and the simulations of friendship that they give us. Well, um, many, many children today, another thing that you, you write about in the book, don't see their parents working. Um, huh. now, part of that's just because of the, the nature of it happening outside the home or there's or what they see is actually like them working. But it's just it all looks the same. It looks like at, actually what the kids do. Exactly, right? just sitting in front of a Looking screen. At a screen. Just, it doesn't look any. It doesn't look any different. So, essentially, it just kind of all runs together. And one of the only things that parents see or kids see their parents do is consume, yeah. consume media, consume food, but not to actually work. And I'm wondering, how does that shape attitudes about work and respect for parental authority? Oh man, I think this is huge. And it goes back before the screen era. It really it really begins to happen with the industrialization, the, the industrial era where work starts to move, uh, especially paid work and especially men's work starts to move out of the home. Um, and then you introduce the labor saving machines into the home so that the mother's work now is less, um, it's less physically demanding, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's also um, more mechanized, more automated, more device-like. And the home over time in the in the industrial age becomes a site of only leisure and consumption rather than creation and cultivation of the world, which is what it was in all almost all pre-modern, pre-industrial homes. This is just, I think, amplified in the screen age. And um, and I think, you know, what you said, it's very has a very profound effect. Children do not grow up seeing their parents doing difficult, admirable things. And it used to be the case that you would watch your mother cook a meal from scratch and she would bake a cake and it would start out as these raw ingredients and then out would come this beautiful thing out of the and tasty thing out of the oven, right? Or you'd walk out to the garage with your dad and, and back when cars, even when we had cars, which are of course uh, technology, but but cars used to be, you know, you could service them uh, as, a, as a, a grown uh, person could, you know, with the right knowledge and tools. And you'd watch your dad work on the car and fix it, and it wouldn't work, and then it would work. Well, well, once all this stuff is outsourced, and once we're in the kind of fullness of the device era, um, children never see their parents doing something that the children couldn't do. So I can push a button on a microwave, but so can my three-year-old. Like, you know, what's what's different about that? Um, and we were joking before we started recording that, you know, right. now what can a dad show his child <laughs> to do with the car? Like, okay, uh, well, son, let me show you how to <clears throat> refill the windshield wiper fluid here. Uh, 
it's this big blue thing. I mean, like, there's not, you know, what? There's nothing to show. And, and so why would you admire your parents? And I do think it really does disrupt that transmission of not just technical knowledge, which was important, like skills and just basic knowledge about how to, how to get a cow to let you milk it or whatever, but also the deep wisdom that came alongside that and all that you learned also from watching your parents struggle with difficult things, right? So your dad would be trying to fix the car and it wouldn't be going well and you might hear language that you've never heard before, but you also <laughs> might see him persevere and overcome it. And now when we all are just consumers and, and the biggest battle in the house is who gets the remote control, except we don't have that battle anymore because we all now have our own screens <laughs> and we all right. stream Netflix simultaneously. Right. Like you've removed all the moments we used to see our parents as figures who really had something to offer us and teach us. And I think that's a huge loss going all the way back to industrialization, but really amplified in the screen age. I think there's actually another factor here that I can't remember if you talked about, Andy, but um, your technology favors the young. So actually, ah, yes, yes. It kids, it upside down, doesn't it? kids wow. are ahead of yes. the parents. So right. actually, it's the kids who are in the driver's seat. They become the experts. With all these things. They become the experts. All of a sudden, what does that add on all this? Not only is there no opportunity for the parents to pass along wisdom, but that wisdom that the kids are being raised in, in their schools and with their peers and all this, the wisdom is, is that your mastery of these devices is what's going yeah. to lead to your own prosperous future. Yeah. Therefore, you have an advantage. Yeah. over your parents who are just kind of oafs or doofuses yeah. when it comes to this stuff. Yeah, and I I uh, get a little tired of the language of digital natives and that kind of stuff because um, I think it, it, it overplays the intergenera yeah, intergenerational differences because actually we're all swept along by this in many ways. But the way it is actually a beautiful metaphor is when you talk to people who did arrive as children as immigrants to the United States and their parents, um, you know, adults struggle to acquire a brand new language like English, right? But children acquire it very easily without even trying. And so you end up with kids who are able to speak a language that their parents don't. And it's the d dominant language of the U.S. And when you talk to kids who grew up that way, and they had to translate for their parents. I had a friend who's both of whose parents were deaf and he was hearing. And so as a child, he was always interpreting to his parents. And and the way that inserts the children in positions of knowledge of things that otherwise wouldn't have to be communicated through them and of authority because they can sort of shape how the conversation goes, it's a tough thing. And it, it's we know how disruptive and challenging it is for multi-generational families who immigrate. And in a way, a lot of us are going through that with, the, with certain kinds of digital transitions too. And uh, it's just a it's a tough reality for families. Yeah, that clearly communicates. That makes that makes a ton of sense. Um, I mean, I think I think it's clear just in general here of what you're you're saying. One thing you talk about in the book is that, you know, evangelicals are hardwired to reject legalism. You know, it's like uh -huh. no, any yeah, rule, yeah. any rule is right, right. legalistic. You're pretty clear in the book that you don't think there's really much risk of that at all <laughs> today. Um, we, we, cer we certainly seem on the continuum uh, closer to licentious, oh but, um, but help me to apply this in one specific way here. And, you know, there's kind of been a push of like, oh, don't, don't talk about quiet times and stuff like that because that's too legalistic and stuff like that. But I wonder, it, it, help me with this. How does waking up to my iPhone shape my view of God? <laughs> well, it, 
I mean, your iPhone is there waiting for you to look at it. And, you know, the new ones now, they, they know when you pick them up, they'll, they'll wake up just by being picked up. You don't have to, you know, turn them on. And all those net notifications will pop up on the screen if you have it set that way. I think what it, what it short circuits is, you know, you specifically mentioned waking up. And I would say going to sleep and waking up. These are the most vulnerable moments of our human days on a, on a given day. I mean, there's other very vulnerable moments in human life, but on a routine, in a routine way, every night I fall asleep. And I, in English, we use that verb fall. And with all of its sets of who's going to catch me, what's going to be at the bottom, you know. Um, and those are the moments when, for generations, for millennia, Christians and Jews and prayerful biblical people have trained themselves to practice the presence of God. That as I'm falling asleep and as I wake up, I, I fall asleep to a God who isn't going to sleep, who's going to care for me, and I wake up to a God who's who has cared for me and who will provide for the day to come. And I need to practice that because I am naturally self-absorbed. I'm naturally gripped by anxiety at both of those ends of my day. And if I have this little distractor device that will uh, maybe lull me to sleep with distraction until I, my eyes just are so heavy that they close and will wake me up with all these notifications about things I need to know about and things I need to do and what's my schedule for today and what's the weather like, I'm going to miss the quiet in which I'm going to discover how to depend on God. Um, so I, you know, honestly, I will say this is one thing that changed in my life because I wrote this book <laughs> is I was not doing that. I was, I was waking up with my device and friends of mine said, oh my gosh, we don't even let those things in our bedroom. Why would you do that? And, um, and the answer was, well, because I, it's an alarm. And I realized I have an alarm clock that is sitting there that could be used. And so more and more I'm, I'm leaving it far from our bedroom and more importantly, even, when I get up in the morning and I make my tea, which is my first act of devotion in the day, <laughs> I've decided I am going to go outside before I look at my iPhone. And so I'm going to make my tea. I'm just going to open the door. And even for 30 seconds or 10 seconds, I'm going to step outside and just be in the world rather than jump into this virtual world. And I was not doing this until until I wrote that chapter about how we wake up and how we go to sleep. And I just want my life to have this space in it where I acknowledge that I'm human, that I'm created, that I'm part of creation, that I'm in relationship with a gracious creator before I immerse myself in the distraction and anxiety that the day will bring. Yeah, I think, Andy, that's probably going to be the biggest change that comes from me um, on this as well. Um, I've noticed, like, I don't drink coffee, which a lot of People seem to yeah. be very disturbed by that I don't drink coffee, but I'm like, but I realized the last couple mornings I've been trying to do this after reading your book and I realized like, I can't wake up. Well, why can't I wake up? Because my phone is what I was using to oh, jerk me into attention. Goodness. That was my coffee. That was my jolt. Oh, was looking my there. Goodness. So that's, yes. not a, that's not a very good thing, but I will say this. I think after reading your book, my tendency to read my Twitter mentions before going to sleep is probably the opposite of what I should be doing, especially because those Twitter mentions tend not to be very positive. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, oh, guessing, I'm guessing lying late at night in the dark by oh, myself, oh, reading lots oh. of nasty things people are saying about me is probably not the best oh, way to my spend my time. So anyway... I'm learning some things. Like I said, we're entering into the confessional at this point in the podcast. Um, 
All right. I just I just have a, a few more questions. Um, let's say, Andy, somebody's not ready to buy into your full program. What then would you say is the single most important practice you'd tell that person to immediately implement? And I'll, I'll give you first what I would suggest. Okay. okay. So you can tell me if I'm wrong, but here's what I would suggest. Yeah. I'd vote for singing together, which you talk Ooh, about in the wow. uh, you talk about the book. We love the hymnal, which is crazy because we don't go to a church that sings the hymnal, and we're some of those evangelicals who left all that stuffy stuff um, behind. Um, <laughs> but my two-year-old requests "Amazing Grace" and "Come Thou oh, yeah. Fount," which he can yes. sing both of them. Yes. Hymns ninety-two and ninety-three in our old United oh, Methodist yeah. hymnal. Wow. And so uh, he calls it the hymnal, but you know, whatever. We, we're we're getting there. <laughs> That's what I would suggest. But what is? What do you think? What's that? What's that practice that you would recommend? The first Gosh. thing you'd say. Well, I first I just love your your own take on it. I uh, it's not what I would have said. Although I think I wouldn't have said it because I wouldn't want to make. I, you know, the reality is uh, some families. Uh, if you didn't, it's sort of like language. If you didn't grow up with music at all, especially producing music, like your son fortunately is doing. If you don't grow up with it, you do sometimes. It, just you're missing the sort of uh, cognitive apparatus to produce music, to sing. And you might love music, but producing it, you can't. And I hate to make a family feel like somehow, you know, if, if we aren't musical, we have to do this. And frankly, if you told our family we had to go out and play like pick up basketball, uh, it would be so, so awkward because uh, yeah. we're not very athletic, honestly. And uh, so I get that different families are different. Although I do think you're onto something that, um, and what you're really onto is let's fill our lives with the best things we know to create that actually call us to do something rather than just consuming, right? So fill your life with creating rather than consuming. And actually, I'd be totally up for a family making a pickup game in the backyard or in the in the driveway. Uh, that's probably just as good as singing, almost as good, almost as good as singing. Uh, what I would have said is, is probably um, – the Sabbath, because it is, after all, uh, a commandment. <laughs> and the Sabbath principle is that one day a week, we lay down everything that gives us uh, provision for ourselves and significance apart from God, and or that where we could somehow provide what we need, our sense of significance, identity, um, f physical and material provision, and so forth. And for our family, that's meant, and this is what I would re really recommend, is actually not just one day a week, but uh, on a daily basis, one hour a day, and on a yearly basis, one week a year. So one hour a day, one day a week, one week a year, turn off the screens. <laughs> and uh, because that will serve as a kind of circuit breaker on the power of these things to keep us engaged 24-7. Um, and, and actually, what you will then find yourself having to do is have a conversation, sit down and sing some music, play a game, go for a walk. The Sabbath opens up space to do these human things that, that the world of work will never give you permission to do. And the problem with these devices, these devices are really good at helping us work better in the world. I think that's what technology is for. It's, help, it's to help us actualize our potential in the world. But that's work. And there's this other thing we're meant to do, which is worship and in the context of worship, relate to one another and be present to one another and to God without having to provide for ourselves. And devices are a big hindrance from that. So I'd, I'd put in place some rhythms of disengagement and then some rhythms of engagement like singing together. And it seems to be that hour a day, you, you seem to, uh, or at least practice yourself or recommend maybe around that dinner hour. Is that right? Do you think that's where that's going to commonly become? 
I think dinner time is good for families with older kids. I think bedtime is a great hour yeah. um, for families with small kids. Um, uh, you know, we don't tuck our teenagers into bed, and so <laughs> bedtime is a less important moment. But dinner really is important for our family. And man, if we can have an hour where we're, we're maybe we're preparing the dinner, we don't really sit at the dinner table for an hour. We're Americans. That's an un-American thing to do, yeah. right? That would be like French or something. Uh, <laughs> So we don't sit there that long, but but in the preparation of the meal and getting the table all ready and then sitting down and praying and eating and having plenty of time to talk and none of that with these glowing things. That's a really yeah, healthy. Don't bring the devices to the dinner table. Is there any hope for me, Andy, as I support my family through online publishing, social media <laughs> and podcasts? Okay. I ask this genuinely. Can my faith in God survive this medium as somebody who's doing this for the sake of God. I don't want to be glib. I mean, I, I think we, it would be so glib to either say, um, oh, it's all going to work out fine. Why are you so worried about it? Or, uh, or to glibly say, uh, you know, f you know, flee and become Amish. I mean, and, uh, and that, having said that, uh, two counties over is the largest community of Amish in the United States in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, from where I live. And the way they live together is extremely admirable and creates beautiful land and animals that are well cared for and families that are in, intact and love one another and stick with each other. And I mean, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a little dangerous to make that the foil when so much about their lives is actually very faithful. Um, I think there is a way, though, to do it, and it's the way that I and my family are trying to do it, which is to build your life on things that are not digital, that are not virtual, to live in the real world a very significant chunk of your life, beginning with this rhythm of Sabbath that anchors you in who you really are and who you are really connected to, both God and family and neighbor, um, and then to have disciplines <laughs> in our lives that serve as circuit breakers for all the ways that technology can amplify our own propensity to be self-providing, right? And be self-justifying, really. I, I will say I feel like I'm able to do it. I, I think I'm being honest here. I, I live a lot of my life with a screen in front of me. I mean, I wrote this book on a screen. I, I am on Twitter a lot, actually, um, though maybe I don't take the risks I should and so people don't get mad at me in the way that they would if I were being, I don't know, using it more thoroughly or something. But I feel like, by the grace of God, I've been given just enough real relationships with real people who are my three-dimensional friends <laughs> um, who ground me and that my life has just enough quiet and just enough beauty in it that doesn't appear, that doesn't glow, um, that, I, that it's possible to do this. And, and I will say the only reason I felt like I could write this book at this point is I have this 20 year old and almost 17 year old who are living beautiful, difficult. I mean, they're teenagers, right? It's difficult. It's awkward at moments, but beautiful lives. And they love us and they love each other and they know how countercultural they are. And, and, and they're on, you know, they use Snapchat and Instagram and that stuff to connect with their friends, but they're not owned by it and they're not defined by it. And they, 
have we've seen these two little human beings grow up into people we really, really admire. <laughs> so I guess I would hold out hope that if we support one another um, and are the church for one another and call each other to real life, that there is a way to do it in a, in a healthy way. Well, that that is not glib. That is encouraging. Um, and I think, Andy, that really summarizes for all the listeners the kind of perspective that they're going to get in the book. Um, this is not a head in the sand book. Uh, this is not a run, flee, become Amish book. But it is a call that if we want to pursue the things of God, we cannot pursue at the same pace or the same direction all the time where the rest of the world yeah. is going. Um, that should be obvious to us as Christians, but I'm not sure that is obvious to us as evangelicals in particular, who define ourselves as being culture affirming uh, in many ways. Right. I mean, going back to a lot of your influential uh, writing over the years. And so, you know, we're, we're a culture engaging people. Um, you know, evangelicals tend to be the early technological adopters. And we know there's a lot of wonderful things out there and I wouldn't have this job and be able to do the good things that I can without this technology and yet um, I do sense the same thing you do that we are at the early stages of a revolution that we have not yet fully understood um, in its implications and that if we're not if we're not very careful about uh, fleeing some things in order to pursue the best things um, that we're going to end up in in uh, in rough shape, and so I'm <laughs> thankful for the for this book and for you. Again, I encourage people to to pick it up. The TechWise Family, Everyday Steps for Putting Technology in Its Proper Place, uh, coming out from Baker. I also want to thank people for using that technology to listen to this podcast today <laughs> and sharing it with others. You've been listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org. Support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. Learn more and join us at tgc.org slash donate.